Thank you for listening to this virtual presentation of Atoptic 2020. Atoptic is a Twin Cities-based arts festival focusing on comics, zines, and print media. For obvious reasons, we could not have an in-person event this year, but in conjunction with the Gutter Boys podcast, we are able to bring you a great series of interviews and discussions. Please visit anchor.fm slash gutterboys or atoptic.org for more interviews and information on how to subscribe to our podcasts. We also created a fantastic print catalog to commemorate the applicants and exhibitors you would have seen at Atoptic 2020. For more information on how to order a catalog, please visit atoptic.org slash 2020. That's A-U-T-O-P-T-I-C dot org slash 2020. Thank you again for listening and on to the conversation. listening to a conversation with Julia Graffer, a panel for the online Autoptic 2020 festival. My name is Sean Knickerbocker. So Julia Graffer is a writer and artist from New Hampshire. Her comics have appeared in Cicada Magazine, Kramer's Orgot, and three volumes of Best American Comics. She self-publishes many comics under the imprint Thuban Press, and her two other graphic novels, Laid Waste and Black is the Color, are also available from Fanny Graphics Books. She lives in New York with writer Shanti Collins and their beautiful children. With that, let's uh, begin our conversation. Julia. So your newest book, Vision, is coming out from Fanographics in August. So do you want to kind of tell us about that project? Sure. Uh, it's funny. I haven't really uh, found a good way to describe it. It it takes place at like the turn of the century, uh, the previous century, uh, the, the 19th century. Um in New York and it's about a woman who lives with her brother and her brother's wife um, and has a, a sexual relationship with the uh, haunted mirror in her bedroom. Um, she has eye surgery at one point. Uh, it's uh, I guess it's a ghost story. It's a ghost story, but it's, it's, you know, it's a pornographic ghost story. So with this story, like a lot of your, your comics in general, they tend to veer towards horror. Um, uh, with those kind of stories, what, what kind of influences do you draw upon? Um, I really love horror. I'm like a big believer in genre. Uh, I think that's where... Um, most of the interesting things happen. Um, and let me see. I think I don't really read that many comics. So a lot of what I'm influenced by is probably novels and movies. Uh, I guess it's obvious that I like Edgar Allan Poe a lot. Uh, I like David Lynch. Um, I love Hellraiser. <laughs> that, that influence might not really show in Vision. Uh, With those uh, influences being drawn outside of comics, uh, has it kind of always been that way? Have you just always kind of approached comics from the outside? Did you kind of come to comics a little bit later um, in your in your life, or did they? Was that something you kind of had when you were like younger? Well, I was. I I kind of came to comics through zines. Um, 
I was, uh, I went to art school, uh, my degree is in painting and printmaking, uh, and I was planning to be a fine artist, um, and then I kind of started making zines on the side for stuff, or not really started, because I have always made zines, but they're like, you know, I didn't take them as seriously, they were just for kind of silly, like, ephemera. Um, and I drew comics for them, but I just didn't really take them very seriously. Uh, and you can see some of those online. I published three or four books with Teenage Dinosaur. You know that press, Tim Goodyear's press in, in Portland, um, uh, called Ariadne of Noxos. Um, and those comics are just really like, I didn't pencil them at all. I just drew them really quick, kind of spur of the moment, whenever I like had a second and a little bit of time to kill, they're all four panels and just pretty surreal. Um, and I met uh, Dylan Williams when I was living in Portland and he asked me to do a book for Sparkplug and he said that he wanted it to be a little longer and a little more serious. Um, so that was Flesh and Bone, um, which came out in 2010. And I think that around that time, my style just kind of leveled off. Like uh, all the comics that I've made since, since then have been aesthetically uh, very much like Flesh and Bone. Um, so I became the artist that I am because of Dylan in many ways. And I'll always be grateful to him for that. I also, um, Flesh and Bone was written and drawn, I don't know if I started writing it before or after my son was born, but, uh, it was like, he was born in August and the book came out in March. So it was made like right in the first six months after he was born. Um, and so it's like, I think my, my personality kind of got crystallized, uh, around that time, you know, Yeah. he was born and then I just uh, um, became the so adult that I was. The zine part of, uh, of your work seems to still be very, even now that you're being published by Fantagraphics, you're still very involved in, in making zines and kind of carrying on that culture. So what kind of draws you to making zines? Oh, I think zines are really important. Um, I don't like to read things online very much. I would much rather read a book. And I also think, um, for me, it makes me uneasy to know that something only exists online because that's, it's, it could disappear at any time. Um, it's much safer to have a paper copy. Uh, and when you, you know, there's like a joy in finding, like if you're at a thrift store or an old bookstore, or, I mean, a secondhand bookstore, and you find a book that is no longer in print, and you're like, this is like a, a, a message from another time. This is like an object that belonged to somebody. Like it has, it's, there's something meaningful in, in touching objects that are designed to communicate between people. Uh, and I think that's an experience that online cannot replicate. Uh, I think there are issues of access that, uh, 
zines are in many ways, not always, um, but in many ways easier to produce, easier to distribute, uh, and easier to get and read also. Um, it's If somebody hands you a zine, it's much easier to read that than to go online and look it up or whatever. At least for me it is. Uh, you know, there's a reason that like chick tracts are a thing. And people don't stand on the street corner and say, hey, go to my Jesus website. They probably do. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but uh, there's also the issue of gatekeeping of like uh, certain work does better um, online or in certain types of publications. You know, if you are asking someone else to publish your work for you, even if that's a, a website or a social media platform, uh, then, you know, you're, you're trying to be pleasing to them in some way. But if you self-publish, you don't have to please anybody. You don't have to ask anybody for permission. Uh, and I think that's so important for artists to be able to do, for anybody to be able to do. Um, because you should be able to share your work with people uh, with as, as little, uh, there should be like as low of a bar barrier to entry as possible. I have uh, on the back of the, I made a guide to self-publishing um, with a, a photocopier as opposed to a as opposed to a computer, which is how I still do it. I still take my originals to the copy shop and like reduce them down and cut them out. Um, because that's just the way that I know I've got it down to a real art now. It's, it's much faster for me to do it that way. Yeah. And you don't have to like rely on Adobe software or anything. You know? Oh yeah. The hell like with that. Subscriptions, you know? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> on the back of it, there's a quote from the, um, Bread and Puppet Theater's Why Cheap Art Manifesto. I would read it to you, but I don't think I have a copy of this zine handy. What's in here? There we go. Okay. It says, People have been thinking too long that art is a privilege of the museums and the rich. Art is not business. It does not belong to banks and fancy investors. Art is food. You can't eat it, but it feeds you. Art has to be cheap and available to everybody. It needs to be everywhere because it is inside of the world. And that was written in uh, 1984 in Glover, Vermont. Uh, the Bread and Puppet Theater was really influential on me growing up. Um, and that, uh, that idea that art should be accessible is, is really one of my core values <laughs> which is why the um Thuban press guide to analog self-publishing is is free or a dollar if you buy a paper copy from me because it's a pain in the neck for me to make them but anybody who wants to can uh download the images and print them out and make their own copies to sell if they want to <laughs> <laughs> and have people like reached out to you like telling you about the, you know, using your like zine? Has that been? Yeah, has, lots, has lots and about? lots of yeah. people have made zines. Or um, so they say based on my instructions, which is great. Uh, it's, it's very, very exciting. There's really, there's 
the feeling as an artist of um, knowing that you made someone else want to make something is, it's just an extraordinary feeling. It's, it's, uh, it's addictive. I think once you, I mean, my friend Gretchen Felker Martin is, is the person who said this. I think I'm paraphrasing her. She said, uh, once you have tasted that, you can't go back to ordinary work. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's very exciting. And I, Gretchen's a fantastic Twitter follow, by the way. I oh yeah. She's a, she's a terrific human really, in real life also. Yeah. Um, and I think I found her through your Twitter conversations when I was on Twitter and yeah, what a joy. Just really, really cool. Person. Yeah, we're kind of like the, you know, there's an episode of Frasier where uh, they, you know, Frasier's always hanging out with his brother Niles and they're very annoying together. Uh, and they overhear someone talking about the two of them and they say, I mean, the thing is, though, you get the one and then you get that other one. <laughs> and they argue over which one is the one and which one is that other one. Anyway, Gretchen and I are the one and that other one. <laughs> you get the one, you get the other one. <laughs> Um, so with a lot of your zines that you do make, you do kind of timestamp them, right? Like you'll put on there, like this was for Mocha 2013. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's nice cause it's like a, a souvenir of the show in a way. Uh, it's nice for me to help me remember when I made it. Um, sometimes shows, uh, will give you a little boost if you premiere something. Uh, so that's just a, a, extra way to draw attention to the fact that it's premiering at that show. But yeah, I, I like to put, uh, this is actually one of the things that I said in the scene making guide that I wrote, uh, to include your name, contact info, the date and location of publication and the price. Uh, cause people like to know those things. You don't necessarily have to put all of them, but it's nice to know, uh, where your book came from. I like that context too of like knowing exactly uh, where and when this book first appeared, you know? Um, yeah. It's a, like a, a nice little detail. And along with that, you usually put something, even like in the, the special thanks for your book, you like included a thanks to Hellraiser, Frankenstein. Oh, those um, are my children. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Helena and Franklin. <laughs> oh, all right. I thought maybe it might, cause you were talking about Hellraiser earlier. So I thought maybe oh, it was like a dark. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I usually always give uh, my friends when I thank them, I give them a little nickname. Frank was uh, Baby Hawk for a long time until he was about five, and then he wasn't really a baby anymore, so I had to change it. <laughs> because I had a friend who used to call me Lady Hawk because he only saw me at uh, night. <laughs> so then the baby was Baby Hawk. So Vision itself was serialized as a mini comic, right? So were you kind of using like shows as a deadline or was that just kind of like a side effect to producing the book? Well, I always knew that I was going to publish it with Fanagraphics, uh, but it's nice to have, it's nice to have the zines so that people, if they're excited about the book, they can get little previews of it. Um, it also, you know, gives me something to sell because if you're working on a longer piece, it's like really delayed gratification to just be working by yourself and keeping it all 
secret. Uh, so it's encouraging if you can get it out there and have people be excited about it. Um, it's nice to have something new for a show. I had gamed it all out where I, I was going to release the books at different shows that I was planning to go to that ended up not happening, which is a shame. Although I think canceling them was the right thing to do. Um, but yeah, so the last two of the four uh, vision scenes, instead of a, a show on them, it just says quarantine 2020. Well, in a way, that's another timestamp for it, though, you know. <laughs> that's going to be, you know, a historic artifact someday. It's going to be a historic artifact next year when it feels like it's been 20 years since now. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I'm, I'm really waiting for that day. It's been the ways I'm, I'm, I'm dreading that day. Um, I think it might only get worse, my friend. I'm a, you know, I try, I have, I have to, in order to survive, I have to be an optimist. So I'm just going to keep lying to myself, but you're probably right. <laughs> I just try not to think too far ahead. You know, like an animal. Think about what am I yeah, doing now? I mean, like that seems to be, yeah, I mean, that's, this is, this moment right now seems to be training for that. It's like the idea of thinking of anything 14 days ahead of now seems absurd. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I'm one of those people too, who, uh, has been in training for crises all my life. So not that I'm not horrified and panic stricken by the state of the world, but, uh, I think it is a little easier for me to deal with than I've seen. I mean, on Twitter, everybody is talking about how they're in crisis all the time. Maybe it's exaggerated for effect. I feel like compared to a lot of people, I'm handing, handling it relatively well. I think I, I think I manage well in a crisis, all things considered. Does that sound? I don't know. It is what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I mean, I, I feel I kind of feel you there. Um, I don't know. I, I, my, I'm usually a pessimist until things are really bad. Then I become an optim optimist. And I feel like that should be a sign for people around me that things are bad. <laughs> but yeah, I'm in like optimist mode. I'm like, no, this is the only way I can survive. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you also do tattoo stuff, right? Do you still do like tattoo designs for people or? Yeah, I, I haven't taken commissions in a while because I was working on my book and a couple other anthology pieces. And then I wasn't just because I, I'm like we were talking about, I have a hard time thinking more than a little bit ahead. Um, and I can be pretty irresponsible about commissions. It's very hard for me to keep track of them. Uh, and so that's part of the reason I do them through Etsy and I take the, uh, payment up front because if they pay me when I'm finished, then I'll just never get around to it. But if they pay me first, then that creates a sense of obligation. Um, but it's also, uh, yeah, I felt like it would be irresponsible for me to keep taking commissions when I'm even in the best of times, my ability to work from day to day is pretty variable uh, for a lot of reasons. You know, Sean and I are both, uh, we do freelance work, so our schedule varies from day to day and week to week, depending on what assignments we have. Uh, and then the children also have different things going on, not that they're going out to do things now, but you know, sometimes in during the day they need extra attention or something. Um, and also just like 
my mood can be really variable. Um, so it just feels irresponsible to me to commit to anything that is long-term, uh, unless it's like really long-term, like something next year, and then I can just chip away at it. But, uh, one of the most recent commissions that I did, it took me like almost a year to complete it. And I was like, this sucks. <laughs> I felt so bad. And I, I, I want you to know, I gave the guy some extra, like I gave him original art and zines and all kinds of stuff. And I said, I'm so sorry, but it's still, it sucks. It's like not, this is the reason why I like get laid off from every real person job that I have. <laughs> when I tell people, like if you tell regular people who are not involved in comics, like people ask me, Oh, what do you do for a living? And I, I make comics full time, so I have to say, well, I'm a cartoonist. I should just say I'm an illustrator. Maybe that would be less interesting. And they go, oh, wow, good for you. That's so cool. And I, I mean, it is cool. I'm, I'm extraordinarily lucky. I'm very happy to be able to do what I do. But also, uh, you know, there's very little prestige and no money. Uh, I am scraping by at the best of times. Um, and... The only reason that I have this job is because I lost every other job that I ever had. I, my plan was to have day jobs, but you know, I was living in Portland. The economy was so bad. I just, I got laid off tons and tons of times and it was just too much. <laughs> well, I was just going to say with your, your, your style of drawing, I think it lends itself very well to, uh, <laughs> to, kind of to get back to style. tattoos. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I was, the tattoos yeah. look beautiful. Um, people send me photos of them. I don't know how they age or if that's my responsibility. I don't really know that much about, uh, the technical art of tattooing, but I have chosen to believe that that's not my responsibility. Yeah. I mean, you, you kind of have to figure it. like yeah. <laughs> you do, you do the job that you get paid for and then you just have to leave it. Like, uh, you know, Aiden Coke, she's a cartoonist. Yeah. So she does a lot of tattoos, beautiful tattoos. Uh, and I asked her one time, like, don't you ever, do you ever worry about, cause I worry about this. Like I'm going to say some asinine thing online, uh, and everybody will hate me. And then people who have tattoos of my work are going to be ashamed. And she was just like, no, they get what they get. <laughs> <laughs> so I tried to cultivate that attitude ever since then. That was like 10 years ago. <laughs> but it, it really stuck with me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's funny. The idea of, um, you know, like cancel culture affecting your tattoos, you know? <laughs> well, like, it feels like you have a certain amount of responsibility to people who have a tattoo of your work. You know, like if people show up at, um, at my table at a show and show me a tattoo that they have of something that I drew, I'm so excited. It's like seeing a family member, you know, I want to give them all kinds of free stuff. Uh, it feels like they should get special privileges at the table for whatever that is worth. Maybe they don't actually, you know, they don't want to be friends with me. They just like the drawing. But to me, it's like, <laughs> I feel uh, warm towards them. And I want to do things for them. And I also don't want to disappoint them. But uh, sometimes I am unable to prevent myself from being disappointing. So Mm. <laughs> um along with tattoos you do you do illustrations that like you, you run like a threadless shop right like you you have like a wide variety of designs that you 
have printed on t-shirts and that kind of stuff. Um, is that something you're still actively putting together or is that just kind of like a passive thing or? No, yeah. I mean, it's print on demand. So like every time that I do a drawing that I feel like would be a cool t-shirt, I can upload it on there and sell t-shirts. But yeah, it's mostly passive for me. It's not like I'm filling orders or anything. But, you know, it brings in like maybe one or two hundred dollars a month, which is nice. I don't know who these people are that are buying all these shirts, but I am so grateful for them. <laughs> well, I have the Emperor of Ice Cream t-shirt. Oh, good for you. Oh, that's such a nerdy <laughs> one. Good for you. Yeah, I, I work in a, a book uh, book printing shop. So uh, sometimes I wear it and people... Like a bindery? Like, what is that? Like, um, it's, a, it's a full book printing shop. So it's like, you know, presses, bindery, all that stuff. I used um, to work at a bindery. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. But I, I wear my shirt and I get excited and like, oh, and someone's going to like know the reference and like nobody ever like knows the reference. I'm like, it's a whole student poem. I'm going back to my desk. So the first time I heard that poem, do you want to hear this story? I, yeah. uh, I was working at uh, the Paper Zone, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was like kind of a crummy like crafts supply store. Um, you could buy paper there, obviously, and, like, scrapbooking materials, rubber stamps, that kind of shit. Um, and I'm curious about people all the time. So whenever possible, I was, I would ask people, this was in Portland, this would have been in, like, 2008, you know, what they were buying their paper for, uh, what they were working on. And this one guy told me that he was an a professor and he was teaching a class about poetry and he was making a, a like a bulletin board display for his class or something and I, I said oh my god I love poetry do you know any poems by heart and he said yes and I said okay I'll tell you one and you tell me one and that was the one that he told me I was so moved I was just like that's extraordinary this is this is the best possible thing you could have said to me <sighs> I know a lot of poems by heart that's a really good one to know by heart. Um, I know. Yeah, I actually, I, I don't know that one by heart, but maybe I should learn it. But I know a lot. Like, I know it's been a while since I counted, but at least two dozen poems by heart, and I don't think anybody wants to hear them. Uh, it's not a useful thing to do maybe to memorize poetry except that it is pleasant to recall to yourself if you're on a long bus ride or something occasionally somebody finds it charming i've always been impressed by it. I mean, you know I, do you know any poems by heart i i don't i mean i'm a moron um i, I, I have a tough time remembering <laughs> well you anything. don't have to go that um, far <laughs> do you have a favorite poem um actually it probably is emperor of ice cream i just i heard that that's one. beautiful i mean it was yeah, it, it stuck with me when in like high school, so it's always been there. But um, yeah, do do you read contemporary poetry, or do you just kind of uh, do? You I mean, if you're going to start or... asking me questions about it, I'm going to have to say no. I don't read it that often. <laughs> no, but I just wonder if you had some like general like books or or particular poets that you were fond of. You don't have to answer it. That's fine. <laughs> oh no, I know. I really got into uh, Randall Jarrell recently. I don't know Randall Jarrell. Like, what, what kind of stuff does he write? 
Well, he, okay, he wrote a book, uh, he writes regular poetry too, but he wrote a, a children's book. It's like a chapter book, but it's a children's book that's richly illustrated by Maurice Sendak. Um, that's about a bat who is a poet. Um, and I, I got it for my stepdaughter for her birthday because she loves bats. And I think that given the opportunity, she will love poetry also. She's still quite young. Uh, and then I, lo I love Sendak. So that was, I think, how I came across that. I can see that line being drawn between your work and Sendak, actually. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's good. Catch. I'm yeah. glad you think so. <laughs> He's definitely a big influence on me. Um, I actually, I... <sighs> So I keep thinking I'm, I'm, um, repaying some kind of karmic debt. Uh, but the fact is that I keep finding, uh, baby birds in distress and other animals, other small animals, but mostly birds. And there was, you know, we had a hurricane a few days ago. Uh, so I found this baby mourning dove next to a, a tree that had fallen over. Um, and her sibling was there beside her dead. So I, I brought her home and I, I'm raising her now. She's in her box on the top of the bookshelf. Uh, and I named her Ida after, uh, Ida from outside over there, which is a Maurice Sendak book. Uh, I really love, do you know, um, Don Marquis, uh, Archie and Mahitabel? Mahitabel. Um, it, okay, actually, this is interesting because the edition of these that I have is illustrated by George Harriman, the crazy cat guy. Um, but it's, uh, it's a series of poems about, um, they're written by a, I think he's a cockroach, Archie, who, uh, sneaks into an office at night and types by hopping from key to key on a typewriter. Um, and he talks about other animals that he meets. One of the animals is, is an alley cat named Mahita Bell. I don't know how to describe it to you in a way that sound, doesn't sound stupid, but it's actually beautiful. <laughs> if you're not careful, I'm going to start reading you poetry on the air. You better ask me another question. <laughs> um, yeah, so moving on, like, since we are kind of like stuck at home, um, and do you find that you're able to get more work done because of the situation? Because you were saying earlier that you kind of you do better in these situations more than others. So do you find that you've been able to have more of a regular schedule of making work or is it still kind of hit and miss? Or? I'm, my creativity is the same as ever. I'm like equally productive. Um, I am accustomed to making work through adversity, I guess I would say, uh, you know, part of the reason that I settled on the format that I did is, uh, cause I draw quite small. I draw, um, like the, the full page is at eight and a half by 11, but the, the panels are small on the page. I don't know. Um, so for like a half size zine that would be reduced down from I don't know, like a six by nine, not very much is what I'm saying. Um, the point is it's all like 
the work is very portable sized uh, and can be done more or less wherever. I have a desk now, but I didn't always. I mean, nobody did always. That's not saying that much. Um, but many, many of my comics have been made, you know, at a kitchen table or in my lap or on the bus or whatever. Uh, and I would just have them with me in my bag all the time for when I had a spare second to work on them. Uh, so... And I think that I don't usually run out of ideas. I have like, I have a brain that is working all the time, just like spitting stuff out like a fire hose. So that's not a problem for me, although it can be tiring. Uh, I don't know. It sounds shitty to be like, oh, I don't have this problem. Everybody else has, but yeah, for me, it's not. It's not that much of an issue. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't say uh, that I've been more productive. Right. You just kind of. It's just, the same. You're just rolling along. Yeah. Well, you know, it's Sean and I are at home working. Uh, you know, the kids are entertaining themselves. Sometimes there's three of us. Sometimes there's four of us. You know, it's the same as it always has been, really. Except the kids are never at school now. But that's um, the same as that's every summer. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so you had uh, you had co-edited an anthology with Shanti Collins, uh, Mirror Mirror Two, uh, correct? Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that experience of of being an editor and kind of working with other artists and kind of picking people for a book and putting that together. Well, we just put all of our favorite artists in it. You know, we just talked about who's making the art that we're the most excited about. And we made a big list and then we asked those people, um, you know, a lot of them are our friends, which made it easier. Uh, I, I've always known as an artist how difficult it is for editors to wrangle us. Uh, and I have never envied them that job. And that was borne out by my experience as an editor, probably. Uh, it is as hard as it looks. But I'm also just not. That's not my calling, you know. Uh... But it was fun to make like a, I do like to curate. Um, I have a lot of tumblers. That's basically a curation activity. Uh, and it was nice to put together kind of like a statement of what we care about in art. Not what everybody should care about, just what is important to us. And we have kind of like this shared vision of like a, I don't know, abjection, the, the overlap of, of terror and desire, that kind of bullshit. <laughs> uh, 
and we chose artists who who naturally work in that space so they made it easy for us too yeah it's like um it's a very like goth book you know in general oh yeah that was the intention for sure yeah it was like it's just like the most like metal thing I could imagine as far as a book goes. Just... Yeah, thank you. That edge paint, I really pushed for that. Yeah. yeah <laughs> it's good, it's very right? cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I feel like I've seen that a few places since then, of that, the black edge paint on, like, comics and stuff. Now I'm like, I wonder if people just saw this and, like, I want this. I would love to think <laughs> that I started that, but I'm sure I didn't. <laughs> um, but, yes, an edge paint is very glamorous. Yeah, good move. All right. Um, so I guess we'll wrap things up. Do you want to tell folks where they can find your work? Sure. Um, seek you out. Yeah, I have a website, which is www.thorazos.net. That's T-H-O-R-A-Z-O-S, like Thorazine, um, dot net. That's also my email address. That's my username on most things. Actually, it's probably my username on everything. I'm sure that's my Patreon and my Instagram. I don't remember what other things there are. I have a Tumblr. My username is Dupless, like the Dupla ghost from Paper Mario to the Thousand Year Door. <laughs> Did you play that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I love this character I mean, so I'm... much. Yeah, and people uh... used to message me all the time asking me if they could have that handle because I got it, like, early in Tumblr. I didn't know that it was going to be in demand. Yeah, Dupless is a ghost who, um, you know, you're... This is like a, a, a Mario game, but you have a little party like you would in more of, like, a Final Fantasy type of a game. Uh, and this ghost, uh, he won't tell you his name. You were trying to find it out. Uh, meanwhile, he tricks you and steals your identity. So then he's Mario and you're a ghost. And then you he goes around with your friends talking shit about you and being mean to them so that they hate you. And then you have to fight your friends because they think that he's you. Anyway, this is, this is moving to me. Um, That's like a classic RPG trope, though. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think Tumblr is the one thing where I have a different username, but yeah, mostly everything is Thorazos. I'm pretty sure. Oh, uh, and I have a, I have an Etsy. I'm Thorazos on Etsy and on Threadless and on Teespring too. I believe. I think Teespring is like, um, Threadless only goes up to like two X or something. So if you want bigger plus sizes, then I have a Teespring also for that. <laughs> all right um perfect no that's that's perfect thank you so much julia this has been a fun talk um, yeah thank you so much it's been a pleasure okay. yes so just... thank you again for listening to this presentation of autoptic 2020 for more information about our organization and events please remember to visit autoptic.org that's a-u-t-o P-T-I-C dot org.